This is the Commercial Property Show, Australia. Show 51. Excuse the French, but all these dickheads who think that when interest rates rise, that's going to cause property prices to go sideways or even go backwards. They're making that assumption based on one metric, interest rates, and not looking at the sum of all factors. Hey, commercial property community, we are back. My name is Andrew Bean. I'm your host today. And in today's show... Real Estate Hall of Famer Simon Presley from Propertyology joins me again for a massive show in 2022. We talk about this residential super boom. How long will it last? Where are the places that are booming? What's going to happen with interest rates? What's going to happen with the federal election? All this and more, much, much more. So check it out. It's an absolutely awesome episode. Simon is always very, very generous with his time. And don't forget to check out our first network show, the Revolve Commercial Podcast. More network shows coming in future. And this one has kicked it off with a bang. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Our next guest is a real estate hall of famer and three-time buyer's agent of the year. It's Mr. Simon Presley. How you doing, mate? Very well, Andrew. Nice to be back. It is nice to have you back. Thanks for being on the show. For the listeners that potentially missed you last time on the show, can you just share a little bit about your property background? Because I actually had a little bit of look on one of your articles that you wrote, and you're actually a qualified accountant, was it, or mortgage broker or something as well? Not an accountant. I've got a commercial finance background, Andrew, yeah. and that was about my first 20 years of my life was on the liability side of our customers' balance sheets, and yep. the last 15 years... I've obviously been helping them on the asset side of things, researching markets all over Australia and buying properties. And the, I guess that what you're referring to is a few tertiary qualifications in there as a qualified property investment advisor, a financial planner, and the mortgage broking um, qualifications from yeah. in the banking days. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect, mate. Very, very well qualified man over here. All right, mate. So for listeners who have probably been under a rock, can you just give us a little bit of a rundown of what's been happening in the residential property market over the last 12 months? Yes, so the 2021 calendar year is officially the second strongest year in Australian real estate history. The official strongest was 2003. Large parts of Australia saw capital growth somewhere between 20 and 
there was obviously various markets that did better than 30% and a few that did lower than 20%. But we only got to go back two or three years ago. And if there's a location somewhere in Australia that grew by about 5% in a calendar year, we would have been going, geez, where was that? That was a really good result. <laughs> Last year, it was um, underperforming if you did less than 20. So great year. We also saw um, huge growth in rents. Sydney and Melbourne with the exception there, but most of Australia saw really significant growth in rental incomes. And so, mate, why are markets booming right now? Well, it's always about supply and demand, but those two simple words are never a simple answer. The supply side of things first. So we officially now have the lowest volume of supply of properties listed for sale in the history of that data set ever being recorded. The previous record low, we've got to go way back to 2010, And for those who've forgotten, in 2010, Australian real estate was booming. Roughly a 10% year, we had all that stimulus from the GFC in 2010. So in that year, 12 years ago, we had 240,000 properties listed for sale in January 2010. Now, exactly 12 years later, January 2022, we had 40,000 less properties for sale than the previous record. But we've got 4 million extra people that live in Australia now compared to 12 years ago. So people doubt undersupply. That is crisis stuff. That's underpinning the growth because there's just any active buyer, you've got bugger all to pick from. So it's seagulls fighting after a chip. On the demand side of things, of course, we've got record low interest rates. So the cost of money is cheap. We've got the single biggest activity of buyers that we've ever seen. It's about 650,000 properties that changed hands last year. And some of those reasons for changing hands are COVID-related. People moving town because they want to get out of a congested city to avoid future lockdowns, for example. People upgrading their lifestyle and escaping the big congested city to an idyllic part of regional Australia. Some investors, although the investor activity is a lot lower than what it needs to be, and first home buyers were quite active last year as well. But the dominant demographic is the existing homeowner who is upgrading their house. And I think that is bloody fantastic. Very few things that are more important than improving your lifestyle through your own home. Yeah, that's it, mate. So what do we need to do to actually catch up with this low supply? How is it going to work? Yeah, good question. And it's also the reason why this calendar year is, is going to be yet another big year, because supply doesn't fall out of the sky. There's three forms of supply. There's the new construction stuff adding a new dwelling into Australia's property stock. There's the rental supply, which is determined by how many people own property for investment purposes. But the thing that has the biggest contribution to asset values and capital growth is the volume of properties listed for sale. It's what we call resale supply. So that's really determined by those who own the properties and whether they're prepared to list it. And Australian real estate at the moment, Andrew, is locked up. So there are a lot of people who own a property who want to sell but they haven't actually listed it to sell because they also want to buy. Think of that homeowner, for example, who does want to upgrade. So they're looking to buy, but they can't buy because they've got to sell first. And it's a bit of a catch-22. I don't know what the solution is for that. And so like with obviously developers usually overshoot the market with supply, Like, how many years do you think that'll before the developers will actually be catching up with this supply problem? So you're talking about the new construction supply there, which as an investor, we always need to keep an eye on. That was the very cause of the last downturn in Sydney and Melbourne, 2017 to 2019. 
where the construction sector in those two big cities got overstimulated during Sydney and Melbourne's last boom. There's no doubt that right across Australia, the, con- the development sector, the construction sector, was deliberately stimulated last year as part of our economic recovery to deal with the global health pandemic. But that's one year in isolation. And what the construction sector have a problem with at the moment is enough labour, to skilled labour, to complete projects. And um, there's a global shortage of a lot of materials, timber and steel and all sorts of stuff. So so that's pushing property prices up and that, uh, sorry, the, the cost of construction up because labour is going up and material, the cost of that is going up. It's slowing down the rate of construction. And you'll actually see, unfortunately, some developers will go bust as a result of this. So at the moment, I'm not greatly concerned of developers building too many dwellings because of those constraints that they have in their own sector. And with that uh, development stimulus they had last year, I seem to remember reading somewhere that it didn't really get taken up that much. It was very, very hard to access. Did you hear that as well? No, I didn't hear that. There there definitely was a bigger than normal volume of properties under construction last year. And fair to say that most of those are still under construction now. A lot lot of projects you don't build in a 12-month period of time. You might start the construction process with your approvals and clearing land and putting in new utility infrastructure, et cetera. But if we picture a house and land estate, for example, they usually have had a three-year gestation period. So the actual sediment dates of these new dwellings, um, for a lot of them, won't be until later this year or into 2023. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so let's talk about the big four banks forecasting for residential property in 2022. What are they forecasting and why is it wrong? For this calendar year, they're all forecasting single-digit growth. For all of the capital cities, obviously slight variations from their best perform predictor for this year and their worst perform predictor, but all single digits. So certainly nothing wrong with that. But as is always the case with all banks and economists, they're always proven to be exceptionally conservative when at the end of a calendar year, you look at what actually did happen in the market and compared to what they originally forecast. So we look at this time 12 months ago, Andrew, what the, all of the banks forecast and what actually happened. The actual results were three, in some cases, four times greater than what they actually predicted at the start of the year. I personally think they'll be yet again proven to be exceptionally conservative with their forecasting. I think um, locations like Brisbane, Adelaide, I'd be surprised if they get less than 20% growth this year. So more than double, probably three times what the banks are forecasting. I think, I think, yeah, Brisbane, Hobart and Adelaide will be around that 20%. And don't be surprised if a couple of those push closer to 30 than 20%, believe it or not. I think it'll be an interesting year for Sydney and Melbourne. A lot of um, potential stress points there as a result of COVID with declining population and hundreds of thousands of jobs lost and that sort of stuff. So it'll be interesting to see whether those two big cities can get through that or whether we see the first sign of um, some stress points there. I don't think there's anything to be greatly concerned about if you own real estate in Sydney, but they definitely have the weakest fundamentals. The best performed property markets, no question, will once again be among our regions. And I think many of them will do well in excess of 20% in this calendar year and quite possibly again next year. Yeah, beautiful. So, mate, there are a lot of experts or so-called experts coming out of the woodwork saying that the rising interest rates are going to slow down markets. What's your view on that? I'm sure it's obviously not the same. And why is that? Why is that? Yeah, so it's one thing, isn't it, for for someone to give a prediction as in X percent growth over a period of time. What I always love hearing from experts is 
what information they relied upon to come up with that that figure because it's often a, it's a good sign for me as to whether they really understand property markets and it's also why these banks and economists never get it right because when they explain the reason for their forecast they show that they don't understand property markets so interest rates are always have an important role to play on property market performance but so do literally dozens of other things there is no formula where we can say that property prices go up when interest rates fall and property prices go down when interest rates rise. The single biggest boom in Australian real estate history also coincided with a six-year period of time, six years where interest rates rose through that entire six-year period of time. They rose by 22 times in that six-year period of time, Andrew, and six out of eight capital cities, their median house price more than doubled. So excuse the French, but all these dickheads who think that when interest rates rise, that's going to cause property prices to go sideways or even go backwards. They're making that assumption based on one metric, interest rates, and not looking at the sum of all factors. One of the most important things what we've just been talking about, there's no resale supply. There's no rental supply. This will be the single biggest year Australia's ever seen for infrastructure investment. Our labour market, for the first time in about 15 years, we are officially at full employment. There are 200,000 jobs advertised on SEEK today, and a lot of them have been advertised for a long, long time. The job's there, but there's no people available to fill these positions. So we're going to see wage growth. So we talk about the interest rates rising, which means an increased expense on the household budget with their interest costs going up. But the RBA could not have been firmer over the last 12 months, saying, yeah, the the next move that we make will be up. But before they go up, wages will go up first. And they've said we'll be as patient as we need to with interest rates until we see sustained wage growth. So let's picture the stereotypical $600,000 mortgage. If interest rates went up twice by 0.5% combined, that's $3,000 increase in interest expense to that one mortgage holder. If the average wage is $100,000 when there's wage growth by just 3%, that income's gone up by just that as well. But what is grossly underestimated with interest rates and mortgage holders is almost everyone with a mortgage already has been paying a loan payment well above the minimum amount required for many, many years, long, long time. So this is why the RBA confirmed that collectively mortgage offset accounts and redraw facilities, existing mortgage holders have about $130 billion in cash. Yeah, wow. Just sitting there. That's a lot of coin, mate. Yeah. So can they withstand a couple of interest rates rises? They flush with cash. Not, it won't be an issue. Where it will, you know, I think, um, impact property markets the most is the nervous Nellies reading the commentary every day, especially when it's a bank or an economist quoted and society puts them up on a pedestal. So someone reading this material every day will think, oh, I'm not quite sure if I should buy. You know, property prices might go down. So frankly, the sooner interest rates rise, the better for those people. So they can sort of see that, there was no need to be spooked. For the same reason there was no need to be spooked when population went flatline because overseas migration stopped. And there was no reason to be spooked about oh, what happens when JobKeeper ends. And there's no reason to be spooked about oh, what happens when those home loan deferral arrangements cease. Well, all those things, these same doomsday forecasters said it was going to cause a crash, three major events. Well, those events have, have passed and property prices increased by more than 20%. So it's a storm in a teacup, this interest rate debate. (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't really think a lot of people really understand why the Reserve Bank of Australia actually would increase the rate. So, I mean, we I just want to get kind of back to basics. In what kind of market or what kind of economic conditions does the Bank of Australia or Reserve Bank of Australia actually want to raise interest rates? Yeah, it's a great point. I guess there are some people, because interest rates haven't increased in this country for quite some time, there will be some existing mortgage holders that have in their time having a mortgage and never experienced interest rates go up. So maybe that's the fear of the unknown for those. But it's a discretionary action on behalf of the Reserve Bank. Like It's a decision that they make consciously. So generally speaking, it's a lever. Think of a property market as a, the engine of a car. The interest rate is the accelerator pedal, but it's not the entire car. It's one component of the car. If you push push the accelerator down, the car is going to go faster. So that's the equivalent of the RBA dropping interest rates a few times. Property markets were probably already increasing in value, but they'll increase by a greater rate if you press the accelerator pedal down. If you ease your foot on the accelerator pedal or apply a little bit of pressure on the brake, it's like the RBA saying we're going to increase interest rates. doesn't mean the car is going to stop. just means it'll be going slower than what it was before. So if we've had a just come out of a calendar year where... Nationally, house prices increased by 22%. They apply the little, the brake a little bit. Okay, but it doesn't mean it's all of a sudden the car's going to go in reverse. Think of it that way. So generally speaking, the Reserve Bank will drop interest rates when they are trying to stimulate the economy. When they feel that 25 million Australians are lacking in confidence, they will give them some confidence by dropping interest rates. And what that does is given that roughly 70% of adults have a mortgage, even without getting any earning any extra money, there's more money in their pocket because their interest expense is reduced. It works in reverse as well. When the Reserve Bank have confidence in the economy, which they do now, and we should be celebrating that, when they've got confidence in the economy, they then start watching for, are Australians getting overexcited? Are they spending too much money? And then we start hearing the inflation word, which we're hearing now. So it's not a bad thing. It means we're going well. And with inflation, one of the things that you know goes up is salaries. So that's a good thing. We should not be fearful of rising interest rates. So basically, just to really dumb it down, so in, in bad conditions, they reduce the rate, and yeah, in right. conditions, they put it up. Yeah. So we go back to the last, when interest rates started to decline for the first time, and people might have forgotten this, most of the drops that we've had over the last couple of years were before COVID arrived. Mm. The last federal election we had was in May 2019. So it's about 10 months before COVID. And in the year leading up to that federal election, there was serious concern that Australia may head into recession. Our economy was weak, largely influenced by APRA, who, who turned the credit tap off. Money comes out of two taps. It's what we earn and it's what we borrow. And one of those taps was, was really, really tight and had been tight for a long period of time. So there were serious concerns that we might go into recession. So that's why the RBA drop rates, because mm. it's concern for the economy then. The fact that they're talking about raising rates, and it's now not a matter of if, it's when, we should, uh, that's what I mean, we should be celebrating, not because our, our expenses are going to go up, but because as a nation, we're bloody performing really, really well. And knowing that the um, Reserve Bank will not increase interest rates, they cannot be firmer until there's been sustained wage growth. So they'll probably balance each other out. Yeah, that's interesting. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be back after this short break. If you're struggling to figure out if that industrial investment that you're looking at is being sold at a fair cap rate 
or the rate per square meter is to market, or how many new leases have actually been written in the last month, and you just wanna understand the supply and demand of a market, then check out CP Data. That's commercialpropertydata.com.au. The only platform that breaks down commercial property data sector by sector for you, the investor, to make informed decisions that are backed with solid data. That's www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. Check out our free membership today. There's a lot of doomsdayers coming out of the woodwork as well that are pointing in the direction of America's inflation. It's going up in December 2021. It was 7%. What's your view on that? And they, because they're saying that it's gonna, Australia is gonna follow. Yeah, I don't really have a great view. I used to um, spend more time years ago looking at that sort of stuff. But history is proof that property markets. I'm not saying they're not influenced by foreign countries' economic performance, but they're nowhere near influenced in the way that the stock market will be influenced by that. The value of a share can change in a second. The value of a property does not change at all until the property is sold. And the average property is held for somewhere between seven and 10 years. So frankly, and I spend more time looking at economic material all day, every day, but I frankly really don't care what is happening in America. That's how significant it is to Australian property markets. And what do you think the outcome would be? Like, say, for instance, Australia did follow America's inflation rate. What Mm. would the outcome be for Australia? So if Australia's inflation increases, that means that, for those who aren't familiar with the word inflation, I guess the things that we spend money on, goods and services, are costing a lot more than what they used to. But like everything in life, some things that cost more, it's more expensive for the consumer, but then the person who's receiving that money is benefiting from that as well. So it's not all bad. You always need to look at the sum of all things. Yeah. So businesses, business turnover goes up, for example. So that's good for them, even though the consumer who are paying paying the, the businesses those, those money, they need to have the income in the first place. So again, it's a complicated thing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So are there any other like uh, international events or things happening in other countries that you do keep your eye on um, that could affect Australian property markets? Yeah, I guess the biggest thing in Australia, in terms of foreign countries that we need to be mindful of is China. That went back sort of 20, 30 years ago, Australia's economy was a lot closer linked to America back then than what it is now. But in this Asian century, our economy is more aligned to Asia than what it used to be, and specifically China. Obviously, there's tension between China and a lot of countries, including Australia. So how that potentially would affect property markets is different towns and cities across Australia where China is one of their big customers. And the most prominent is Western Australia, and the far north of Western Australia, iron ore country, China buys 50% of Western Australia's iron ore, and it's tens and tens of billions of dollars. So if China said, you know, any day, we don't want anywhere near as much of that, it's the equivalent of a business, without any warning, losing 20 or 30% of its revenue, just bang, tap, turned off. So that revenue, it, it's not, it doesn't just affect the property market in the far north, west of Western Australia, it it directly affects places like Perth because the royalties that the Western Australian government collects from iron ore, the state government collects that. So a lot of the roads and hospitals and train stations and all those sort of things that would be built in Perth are are funded by China indirectly. The public service 
that probably employs about 12% of Perth's total workforce is largely reliant on revenue from China. That's just one example, but there are different parts of regional Australia aren't as dependent as what I've described there with iron ore, but their economies are still influenced by China's uh, demand for our goods and services. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so I wanted to shift this chat towards the working from home movement. In CP data, we track employment figures all across Australia for each different location. And last month, there were 8,307 available jobs to work from home. And that's actually the second highest month that we've recorded. What do you think the working from home movement will look like in, in five or 10 years? It's been the single biggest change directly caused by COVID to Australian property markets. And it's not a fad. There are lots of people who we can talk to or they're quoted in the media or whatever. And, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, when, when we get back to normal, like, you know, it'll go back to how it was. Well, some things will. But the psychologists of the world, Andrew, say that as a human, we only need to do something new for six weeks repetitively for it to become a habit. Well, we're now into our third year of living, you know, a lot differently. And for many people who'd never worked from home before or more than a few hours, they've become accustomed to it. Now, some people, you know, even though they've had to do it, hate it. So as soon as they can, they want to go back into the office. Others will adopt a hybrid version, a couple of days a week at home and a couple of days in the office. But many have already, and I'm one, I've already made it a permanent decision. So the most recent official data for work from home statistics is the August 2016 census. It's quite old data now. But back then when we completed the survey, every Australian household had to do it, 4.7% of our workforce predominantly work from home. At its peak during COVID, 60% of our workforce were working from home. We had no choice. But then as um, lockdowns subsided and some of us could go back to work and that sort of stuff, I think we're probably at about 40% working from home now. But some of those people could actually go back into an office. They just haven't done that yet. I think where it will end up landing is somewhere between 15 and 20% of our workforce permanently working from home. Now, people might go, so what? How does it affect property prices? Think of it this way. We've got 10.7 million dwellings. If the income supporting 10.7 million dwellings, if 15% of those rarely leave their house, other than discretionary things, you know, going to shops and going to a cafe and that sort of stuff, there's going to be some big changes to that house. Mm-hmm. Renovating that house, saying the house isn't nice enough for me, I want to buy a nicer house recognising that their job is near their laptop and their laptop can be anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world if they want it to. So they sort of go, well, I actually don't want to live in this town anymore. I'm going to move. Many people have done that. That's been a driving force behind the 2021 calendar year performance. This is not a new thing, Andrew. We're going to see this. I think it will last a generation. Yeah, well, one of the things that I like to ask people when I'm speaking to them for the first time, when I'm asking them about their job and stuff, I'm like, oh, if you were thinking about getting a new job, would one of the things that you wanted to make sure you had is the, the flexibility to work from home? And pretty much everyone I've asked that question to, they're like, yeah, I, I, I do want to be able to work from home at some point or part-time. Um, and that's something that I've been looking for in my next job. And I think that's a huge change. That wouldn't have been a, a thing you were looking for like previously before COVID. Absolutely. And uh, no matter what industry you're in, if you're an employer that is set in, in the old-fashioned pre-COVID ways, it's only a matter of time. If you haven't already, you're going to cause harm to your business because, you know, people with skills, you're right, they want the choice. It doesn't mean that everyone enjoys working at home, don't get me wrong, but you can say that about everything on the planet. 
you're never going to get 100% of humans that all like the same thing, including the food we eat and the clothes we wear and the cars we drive. But flexibility is something that is increasingly becoming an expectation that the employer has the opportunity to do what they want, not talking about the job they want, but where they work from. And there's always going to be factories and retail shops where you have to physically be in there. But roughly 50% of jobs across all industries in Australia are white-collar jobs where the laptop is their tool. That laptop can be anywhere. A lot of Australia's biggest employers have already changed their HR policy. Telstra is one of Australia's biggest employers, for example. And within about six months of all this crazy COVID stuff started, they announced their entire workforce and they said, it's all good. We don't know how long this stuff's going to last, but you can work from wherever you want indefinitely. You can come into the office if you want to do that. You can do it one day. You can never come in. You can work from home. You can move house. You can move city. We don't care. A global leader in technology, we will adjust conditions to suit you. A lot of accounting firms, PwC and Deloitte and that sort of stuff have done the same. They're leading the way. Governments are doing it. Some employees are saying, you give me this choice, so I'll go and get a job somewhere else. We are talking earlier that Australia's employment is full. For the first time in about 15 years, we're chopped up. So the pendulum has swung back to the employee. They're in a position that they can say to the employer, this is what I want. So work from home is a real and long-term thing. Yeah, and as you said before, if you are setting up an office or your house to work from home, you need a lot of different changes to the house to make that you know, better and, and more functional. Um, and I think that's only going to be a good thing for commercial property in a sense in that area, especially you know, cafes and things around where people might want to duck out and get a coffee and have that little bit of interaction. But for something that I'm looking at is self-storage where if you have a lot of junk in your spare room or something, you need to put that junk somewhere. If you can't afford to buy a new house, you're probably going to be using storage facility nearby. So it's, and that's just personal sorts of things, the asset type that I'm chasing. But I can see that this is only going to be a good thing for the wider sense in commercial property across the regions. And I've always been of the, the mindset that there's great deals everywhere, but there just wasn't enough data and understanding and research behind those areas. But hopefully now with the platform that I created for that with CP Data, people can get a better idea of markets and things like that. Yeah, so as we've seen with residential property, for example, there's a heck of a lot less people today that actually are excited about living in an apartment, whereas pre-COVID, there was a lot of people that wanted to do that. So that's one change in the residential space. You've touched on storage in the commercial space. Commercial offices, there will still be demand for them, but, you know, there's a lot of white-collar workers who aren't working there. So some businesses, and again, I'm one, we don't need an office at all. So we sold ours, but then there are plenty of others who still need the office. They just might not have as many people in it before. Now, does that mean they need a smaller office? Or does that mean that they keep the same office and and get creative with how they use the extra space they've now got in it? If, if there's not as many bums on seats in it, they want to respect social distancing. Do they want to put um, their playrooms in there and daycare facilities in there? And It's interesting. This is a changing time for how we live. I'm likening this, I think it's the most transformational period in Australia in 70 years since the end of World War II, what we now know as the baby boom era. Mm. And the transformation that changed back then is at the end of the war, the government said, we are building as many house and land estates as we can. And we want to provide low interest loans for the returning military. We want to encourage home ownership. That was a transformation back then. This is a transformation of a different type but as significant as what we saw back then 70 years ago. 
The transformation now is in the form of lifestyle enhancement. Mm. Uh, lots of people taking advantage of accelerated equity in their assets from this boom that's going on from record low interest rates and taking full advantage of it and living in a much nicer home than what they were living in two or three years ago. That's already started, but I think this could be a decade of that sort of activity. Luxury outdoor areas, not just the old-fashioned kidney-shaped pool. A lavish pool. If someone's going to lock me down and tell me I can't go on a holiday because I can't cross a border again, at least I've got a really nice place that I can enjoy myself at home. If I'm working from home, I want to have a really nice office at home, so I need a bigger house to, you know, to furbish that out. So... Changing times will affect, but in a good way. Yeah, well, the, the office mom demand is, it's just kind of transferred to a different type of office. So now that the suburban office has become a lot trendier, they're doing actually quite well in that type of asset class where the CBD office is the one that's really had the full force of COVID because they might want to go to the office, but they don't want to drive to the CBD. They might just want to be driving 10 minutes up the road to the office that they're using. It just brings a whole different office class into play. Absolutely. It's problematic, I think, for CBD style uh, you know, commercial properties, but, but a lot of the suburbs, as you rightly said, they become the beneficiary of it. There might be some businesses that used to be based in the CBD who aren't based there now. Now, some of them have actually closed up shop. The business doesn't exist. Others have just merely relocated to the burbs, particularly um, at cafes and restaurants and the like. Um, they're thriving in suburbs right throughout Australia. Yeah, it's good to see. So, mate, with the federal election coming up, do you think that will have an effect on property markets? Interesting. Well, not, not a, neither side of government have made any announcements directly relating to property, other than they said quite a while ago now they're not touching negative gearing or capital gains tax, which was the number one topic of the last federal election. So they're not doing that. It doesn't mean that they might have ideas yet to be disclosed to us about some property taxes, although the incumbent federal government have been insistent on they're not increase they're not introducing any new taxes in fact they've reduced tax whether labor have some new tax policies time will tell housing affordability is a contentious issue in the broader media broader society i think it would be highly likely that both parties would be working on some policies to try to win some votes on the housing affordability thing good luck though there is no tangible solution for housing affordability but i'd be surprised if there's not some promises that they just can't fill related to housing affordability. Yeah, fair enough. So, man, I also wanted to have a chat about some market fundamentals as well, like what makes a market boom? And then, so firstly, what percentage of growth kind of in your mind, you know, constitutes to a market has boomed? Well, I don't know that there's any official number there, but, you know, generally speaking, I reckon 8% is, if we look at, look back historically, 8% is a really, really strong performance for a market to have in a 12-month period of time. So me personally, 8% to boom. Now, it's easy to say now because we had, as a nation, 22% last year, oh, that's a poor performing year, but you can't compare anything to 2021 because it's not normal. You know, if you get growth of 5%, on an asset, let's make something up, Andrew. If you own an asset that's worth you paid eight hundred thousand dollars for and it grew by five percent, five percent might not sound like a big figure, but it's forty thousand dollars. There's not many people who could save that in one year, and that's only five percent. So yeah, for me, anything eight percent and above is a boom. Beautiful. And so this is a very, very loaded question. What makes a market boom? Well, at the moment, I guess one thing that's common to all markets is what we were talking about earlier, record low supply. But 
this is not normal. It's too complicated for me to, you know, take up 15 minutes to talk about how we got this crazy low supply, but it's actually got nothing to do with COVID. It was created around that last federal election and the AFRA stuff from years ago that's created it. So booms are generally caused not by low supply. They're generally caused by things affecting demand. And the most sustainable form of demand for property markets is actually not population growth, it's economic growth. So of all the things that propertyology devote resources to every single day, analysing markets all over Australia, it's economic material. Decisions, whether it's city councils, state governments, federal governments, industry sectors, big businesses, new businesses, if someone makes a decision and it's going to cause a job to be lost or a job to be created, when that is scaled up, it has an impact on the broader town or city's economy, either a positive impact or negative impact. So economic growth is the precursor for property price growth. It happens in that order. It happens on the way up and it happens on the way down. If you think of the stereotypical one industry mining town, it's not mining that causes the property boom and the property downturn. It's jobs. The jobs just happen to be, in this case, in the mining sector. If we extrapolate the mining town story out to a bigger location with a more diverse economy, the principles are still the same. As in propertyology, we're looking for locations that regardless of how the property market might be performing today, we've got a big critical mass of information that give us confidence that over the course of the next few years, there's going to be significant job creation. That's the number one fundamental of investing well. Yeah, that's exactly why we track the, the employment data, the jobs in all, each location in CP data. So we can see that trending graph of where it's going up or down um, and what the change has been. And that data is useful. What's even more useful to that, because data is a number in a, in a spreadsheet, right? But what is the number? The number is there after there's been an action. Then it depends which metric, uh, what are we measuring here? Is it, is it something to do with vacancy rates? Or in this case, we're talking about jobs. So we can look at numbers in a spreadsheet and go, oh, that's a bigger number this month than what it was last month and last year. But what's more important to that is to know the action that caused the number. So yep. the real leading indicator for the data that we can look at in, say, a spreadsheet is the decision that was made in the first place, a decision by a business to create jobs or a decision by a business that resulted in jobs being lost. So my next question was, if I'm looking at a market, what am I looking for? But is that going to be, I'm looking for the announcement of some kind of economic change? Yeah, so I can't speak for other people, what propertyology looks for we won't invest in any location, no matter where it is or how big or how small it is, if it doesn't have economic diversity. Investing is about identifying opportunity, but it's also doing it in a responsible way, knowing that no one has a crystal ball, including propertyology, and there'll be something that can happen at some stage down the track that could cause some pain in a market. So a sensible form of risk mitigation for all investors, what we do is pick locations that have a diverse economy. That's We need to tick that box first. Now, just because a location has a diverse economy doesn't mean it's a good time to invest there. What I'm saying is it's a non-negotiable for us to consider investing in a location if it does not have that. We're talking only about Perth, for example, that lacks economic diversity, even though it's our fourth biggest city. Right throughout Australia, there are roughly 100 individual towns and cities that to propertyology have enough economic diversity. So you don't have to be a capital city to have a very diverse economy. There are many regions that have a more diverse economy than lots of capital cities, in some cases most. So, for example, in New South Wales, it's places like Orange and Dubbo 
Wagga, incredibly diverse economies. In Queensland, it's places like Townsville and Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast and Toowoomba. In Victoria, it's places like Bendigo and Ballarat and Geelong and Wodonga. Every state and territory has got what we call these mini capital cities, all the essential infrastructure and a diverse economy. So you've got lots to pick from every single year. Which one you do pick, what we do is it's that job creation material that we're looking for. And we need to stress test it and make sure that we're not entering into a market that one or two years down the track then suddenly is oversupplied, like we were talking about earlier with Sydney and Melbourne a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated than what I've described there, but if I could put it in a dot point format, that's what we do. And so if you're looking at an area and it's already had some growth, how much growth is too much growth where you would say it's already run its course? It's a great point, but you can't answer the question with a percentage answer. It's probably a bit more accurate sort of saying, well, how long has it been growing strong for? But this isn't an exact measurement either. We do know historically that a a growth cycle, a period of years where property markets perform very, very well, three to four years, there's not many locations that experience a growth cycle that goes beyond that. So if there's various locations now or any given time that have already been performing really, really well for, say, three years, without even doing any analysis, logic would suggest it's probably closer to the end of its cycle than the beginning of its cycle. But again, that's a generalisation drawing on the historical evidence. There's always exceptions, and this is why we actually need to look at the individual characteristics of which location. So, for example, places like Byron Bay, Ballina, Coffs Harbour, so the northern rivers regions in, in New South Wales, they've been really strong for about the last six years. Hobart has had significant growth for seven consecutive years. So logic would suggest but I said four or five years ago about Hobart, like it must be closer to the end of the beginning. But yet when I look at the individual characteristics of Hobart today, it's just as strong now as what it's been at any time in the last seven years. So who knows? It may break history and become a 10-year growth cycle. It's important to respect growth cycles don't typically last long, but investing in real estate costs a lot of money. So it's in the interest of every investor to know how do I actually get the information and look at the specific characteristics of a location today and make an educated assessment. Is that market likely to stop next year or does it still look like I can't see the finish line, which is a Hobart situation? Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned Hobart because that was what I was going to talk about next was you've, been, you've obviously reported on Hobart a, a long time ago and I've also heard you comment that you don't want to buy into a market that's already boomed because you're not going to get that boom. It's already yep. happened. You don't want to pay for it. And that was kind of where I was going with that. Yeah, so we've always, but we haven't had a super boom before, have we? So you've got to start somewhere. As, as an investor, and, and we're borderless, so we invest all, all over Australia. We're changing locations every single year. So you've got to start somewhere, a process of elimination. We've got eight capital cities and 200 regions. And I mentioned earlier, there's 100 of those that have enough economic diversity. So every single year, we're looking at those 100 locations and going, which one do we think has the best opportunity? So before this super boom that started, let's say, two years ago, the number one starting point we'd do is, okay, well, let's eliminate the locations that have already been growing strongly for two or so years. Because you've got to start somewhere, don't you, when you've got 100 to choose from. So we go, oh, that's a no-brainer. Now we might be left with whatever, 90 or 80 or whatever it is. And then we look at the individual characteristics of each one of those. But that method doesn't apply now because everything's booming, all right? So if we sort of said, well, we're not going to invest in a market that's already booming, well, then we don't invest. 
So there's the skills that you know we've developed over the years are still just as useful now, but we know that there's no such thing as buying a flat market. Everything's booming. It's just just booming at a different uh, a different uh, rate. Is it growing at 10% last year or 30% or whatever? But more important than what happened last year is what are the characteristics today? How is that going to affect next year, the year after that, the year after that? I like that, the super boom, where you've had your thesis on markets and, and you've improved it over time. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, and why it's called a super boom is because let's say that uh, there might be 40 individual characteristics that have uh, an influence on a property market. Now, you're never going to have 100% of those characteristics that are all good. There's no, no such thing as that. But generally speaking, so if we go back before this super boom started, different corners of the country were doing well. Not a lot were, were booming, but some were because they're local characteristics. So they're, they're local economy, they're local volumes of um, properties listed for sale, the local construction sector. So they're always going to be unique to an individual town or city. So there weren't many of them a couple of years ago that were doing that. But this boom is not only influenced by the local conditions, but there's a few really key macro things that benefit all. So record low interest rates, for example, every market is benefiting from that. You know, stimulus coming out of COVID, well, every corner of the country is benefiting from this stimulus. So that won't always be here, though. So we need to always be focusing more than the macro stuff. What's happening at an individual town and city level, that is always the most valuable information. There one particular market, like with a really, really low population, that even surprised someone who does the amount of research that you do. Like, was the one market that actually surprised yourself? You're like, wow, I can't believe that is booming right now. Like, nothing tells me it's going to boom, but for some reason it is. You're talking like in the last couple like, of like years? A, like a broken hill or something like crazy like that, where you just, you didn't think it would be booming, but just because of the conditions right now, it is. The broken hills of the world are the easiest ones to pick because they're the stereotypical one industry. So they boom when that one industry you know, it's chewing up lots of cash. In that case, it's, you know, when the mining sector's hot, the commodities are always in the ground, but those who own the mine, they just leave them in the ground until they can sell it for a lot more. So they're the easy booms to pick. But, you know, I will admit, you know, whilst we proudly were the only ones who predicted this boom before it started, I didn't expect it would be as widespread mm. as what it's become. I, I, I thought there'd be a few, very few locations who, who didn't do very, very well. But I certainly didn't expect that we're going to see pretty much no less than 20% growth across a two-year period everywhere in Australia, and that some markets have seen 60% growth in about 18 months. There's a place, Scott's Head, in New South Wales. It's a really beautiful little place, perfect working-from-home place, and it, the market was, it's just gone bonkers there. Like, it's, it literally doubled in the last year, like, the, the property prices there. It's crazy. They're, they're a good example. So that's something, there's been global health pandemics before, not that any of us were alive when it last happened, but this is something that we couldn't predict in terms of the human response to it. So why we were so confident in predicting the boom is, to us, it was always obvious that the RBA, for example, are going to drop interest rates even further when the health pandemic started. That was an obvious thing. It was obvious to us that APRA wouldn't stand in anyone's way. They haven't, they haven't thrown loans at people, but they you know, they weren't going to put restraints on banks with lending money. It was obvious to us that the federal and every state government would throw stimulus at stuff. So that's why we were absolutely certain that there was going to be a boom. But it's the human response to COVID that I didn't know what, what a lockdown looks like. All, all yeah. I knew was we going to lockdown, as I remember ScoMo saying, no one can shake hands anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to tap elbows. Like, 
and even if you mentioned, oh, you got you, you know, we don't want you going out much and socialising. And I remember when they first started cancelling sport events and stuff like that, I thought this is a really bit weird. But didn't really appreciate. None of us did, did we? What a lockdown would look like and how long that would last and then how humans would respond to that. So the micro markets like you're describing there, you know, a tiny location that's got 5,000 people, that's benefited from the human response to COVID. We hate being congested. Let me go and live somewhere where I'm not exposed to that stuff, where I've got lots of fresh air and lots of water and, you know, greenery and that sort of stuff. So, and that's what we call a transference of demand. The person who's left the congested Sydney or Melbourne is now living in that idyllic little beach place that you're describing. So, mate, last question. You've already given us a hell of a lot of hot tips, but any hot tips for the next location to boom that maybe hasn't already boomed yet? They're all booming, mate. <laughs> They're all booming. No, I won't give a um, – I always find that not, not only is our intellectual property very valuable to us to release that hot tip, I think it's reckless because what it does for the, the person who is interested in investing, it, it doesn't help their development. You just spoon-feed someone a location – and they act on that location, they haven't learned anything, and they just cross their fingers that the person they got the tip from knows their stuff. So I, I know I know my stuff, but I'm biased in saying that. So what if they get a hot tip from someone else who's, they also say they know their stuff, but turns out they don't. So I would rather give someone a cautionary tip than a hot tip. Okay. Have a think about how COVID has adversely affected our two biggest and most congested cities. And just because they had a really, really strong 2021, doesn't mean they're always going to have a strong year. The things we've been talking about to educate your listeners, you know, what are the characteristics we look for in a market that's likely to perform really well in the future? Job creation, supply, and two bigger cities don't have the characteristics. If you live in those two cities, great, nothing to be fearful of, but don't get caught up in your own confirmation bias. Property markets do not have ears. You can barrack and want them to do well, but the market cannot hear you. The market will perform based on nothing of what you want it to do. So always focus on the fundamentals. So my cautionary hot tip is have a critical and objective look at the fundamentals of our two biggest cities. Perfect, mate. So where can the listeners go to find out more about you? Go to propertyology.com.au. The top menu tab, there's a you can click on an option there called Insights. I personally author two or three research blogs each month, and that is completely free, available to the public. A lot of our clients started out getting familiar and comfortable with us by just reading our blogs for well, six months, or in some cases six years, until they're ready to invest. That's how to get in touch, and thanks for the plug. No worries, mate. Excellent content there that you put out every month, so um, definitely worth subscribing and getting those straight into your inbox. My guest today has been Simon Presley. Cheers, mate. Good to talk to you. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our guest, Simon Presley, and thank you to you for listening to the show. Don't forget to check out our first network show, the Revolve Commercial Podcast. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This is has been a developer life production.